1: That vision which Isaiah saw that introduced our song, our hymn, and what our hymn was about was life changing for the prophet Isaiah, a man of God. And it wasn't just that he heard those words, holy, 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 it was what he saw. It was a vision, after all. His eyes saw something that no man had seen. His eyes saw something, his life, his body experienced something that was hidden in the throne room of God, hidden, inaccessible, powerful, but mysterious and unknown. And as we read Isaiah chapter 6, we see that before he heard the angels crying out, Holy, 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 in other words, imperfection is God's holiness, this is what he saw. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. But even before that, before he notices these holy and powerful angels, which I have said before, I believe, were an angel to appear to you in your room or in some place, even here this morning, just as the women at the empty tomb thought we would bow down Because an angel alone is so holy and bright, we would think, is this God? Is this Christ showing himself to us? And yet even in their splendor and majesty and holiness, they worshiped the true God. What Isaiah saw before noticing them, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe, Filling the temple. Look around this room. Look up. What we are picturing is not just a picture of someone who has so much power and so much money that they decide to make this gaudy, magnificent train of their robe as a king would today or in history past. The train of his robe reflected his power and his holiness. Were he to appear right now, right here, this room could not contain it. So holy and majestic is God that the train of his robe would not just swarm all around us, Practically suffocating us, but we would hear in the muffling of the robe around our ears the smashing and shattering of glass and the cracking of wood as the train of his robe, reflecting his holiness, burst out of this room. We don't get to see that, at least not yet. You have never seen that, it was a mystery. Worshipping a God that they understood could provide manna, could part the sea. Worshipping a God they knew that could appear for their guidance in a pillar of fire, a cloud, thundering and shaking an entire mountain. So much so that even seeing the backside of God, Moses came down from the mountain with his face glowing just because of a second in the presence of the back of God. We don't see that. It is hidden and separated, that's what holiness means, from the world because we are sinners, as we just sang. And yet we worship this God. Is He an unknown God? Do we worship a God in whose presence we cannot even enter? Do we worship a God who is out there somewhere and just trust Him when He describes Himself in the Old Testament? No. Because what was once a mystery is now revealed in Jesus Christ. And piercing that bridge, that wall, whatever it is between the throne room of God and heaven and the place of sinners, Jesus Christ broke through. And in that little channel, it exploded open with grace upon grace and mercy, unmistakable, unfathomable. It is a mystery, but it is wonderful and it is that mystery which has now been revealed in the saints of Jesus Christ, that mystery of godliness that we will talk about this morning as we look at the wonder of His grace. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This morning I want to give you seven wonders of the glorious mystery of godliness. Seven wonders of the glorious mystery of godliness. I suspect that much of this will be review for you. But when we review something like this, it changes a life that in Christ has already been changed. And so this morning, as we unpack these seven wonders of Jesus Christ and the gospel message, may we be emboldened in our faith, refreshed in our commitment to Him, and frankly, friends, just blown away by the very reality of it all. Seven wonders of the glorious mystery of godliness. The first is the declaration the Declaration, Paul introduces what is believed to be a hymn of the early church with this phrase, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. We have spoken much in 1 Timothy about the mystery, and we have seen that it is indeed great. And Paul now brings it up again, and it explains that all believers get this. We know this. We understand this. He says it is by common confession, It means that there is a general agreement about what he is about to say, particularly that it is great. It comes from a Greek word that basically means that as Christians, we all say the same thing. What is the gospel? The gospel is great. In other words, it is the unanimous conviction of all Christians everywhere that this mystery is great. Great indeed, says the ESV, beyond all question says the NIV. There is no denying it. There is no true believer that disagrees that this is great. And here, the word Paul uses has the sense of wondrous, sublime, important. It is great. It is, after all, the mystery of godliness And this elaborates upon the truth that we talked about last week, of which the church, namely every single believer together, is the pillar and support. This truth is all of the Scripture, and this mystery is in particular the gospel, the facts about Jesus Christ. We talked about this back in verse 9, where we saw that deacons are to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience here described as the mystery of godliness, but referring to the same thing. That which was previously unknown, hence the word mystery, but is now revealed. Now you may recall from our study in verse 9 that although this includes all of Scripture, what was hidden were the particulars of Jesus' life and ministry and the aspects of God's plan that were revealed in Him, Jesus Christ. This includes everything from the details of Christ's life to the inclusion of Gentiles in God's salvific plan, from the teachings of our Lord that emphasized internal heart attitude over conformity to the law, to the establishment and building of the church, again, which included all genders, all ages, all people. We also talked about the fact that in some measure the gospel is still a mystery and that it is hidden from those who do not have the Holy Spirit or do not have His aid in opening their eyes to understand it. First, 1 Corinthians 2, 12-14 says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, that is a normal human without Christ, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. This is one of many passages that tells us that the unbeliever cannot fully understand the gospel. It is foolishness to them. That is why when we speak the gospel, preach, share, whatever you want to say, the gospel to unbelievers, it isn't just, yeah, I've considered that. It is, that's not for me. That's kind of weird. I can't believe you believe that stuff. They may not say it, but to them, it simply does not make sense which has its practical application in how we view unbelievers and how they respond to the gospel by the way humbly without with grace rather without judgment understanding that is not us that we understand it by our own strength and power and wisdom it is because of what the holy spirit has done but back to our text rather than referring to this as the mystery of faith as he did previously in verse 9 Paul refers it refers to it as the mystery of godliness, simply means the mystery that produces godliness. Godliness, as you know, being the whole of Christian existence, everything that we are, think, and do in response to the saving grace and knowledge of God. It is our way of life, our reflection of His holiness. And when speaking of true godliness there is nothing else that can cause it, sustain it, or even motivate it than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, Romans 16, 25. This mystery revolves around Christ. He is central to it which is why Paul now elaborates on the greatness of this mystery of godliness with the following hymn, as I mentioned earlier, many believing that this was a hymn that was sung or recited in the early church, which Paul is now reciting back in his letter. It is quite possible as well that Paul wrote this for the first time ever in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as we work through this hymn, we see that in many ways he is simply outlining The life of Jesus Christ. And I won't emphasize this a lot, but you will see that the testimony is clear from two different worlds. You will see Paul bouncing back between the earthly world and the spiritual world. And if you struggle with truly seeing the gospel and all the interwoven truths of the Bible as great, then the rest of 1 Timothy 3.16 will help you come to the consensus that the rest of us confess. The mystery is great. So let me give you a second wonder of the glorious mystery of godliness, the revelation. The revelation. He goes on to speak of Jesus Christ and says, He who was revealed in the flesh. We simply say, Jesus came. This is not referring to his post-resurrection appearances or saying that Jesus was created at some point. This is talking about making something or someone visible. From eternity past, Jesus existed and was approximately 2000 years ago revealed to mankind in the flesh. Earlier I read for you Romans 16:25. Now listen to the following verse, 16.26 of Romans, speaking of Jesus Christ. But now is manifested, this is the same word, made visible, and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. Jesus Christ has now been manifested, revealed. And this revelation or manifestation was done by another, namely God the Father. And He did so not in opening up a window in the cloud so we can look up and see what Isaiah saw from a distance, nor by having Jesus come in as a spirit floating around and saying, this is who I am. Paul says, in the flesh, that is human flesh. This is how we know that he is speaking of the incarnation. Flesh refers to God's humanity in Jesus Christ, starting with his birth and all the way through his life and death, and finally his physical, fleshly, earthly resurrection and ascension, all done as a man while at the same time as God. This was done. So that he could, as Philippians 2.8 tells us, die. This death was for our sins. He was not just revealed in the flesh so that we could see him, touch him, smell him, or at least the contemporaries of Jesus when he was on earth could. It was so that flesh, that human beating heart could stop for three days to be exact. Hebrews 2.17 says he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, to take our place, to cover the sins of those who would commit their lives to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the reference to the high priest is the high priest of the Old Testament of the Jews who time after time had to intercede for the people either in prayer, in confession, in forgiveness, in the slaughtering of their animal sacrifices, but they were promised a one-day permanent high priest that would be the final and last high priest, that was Jesus Christ, that is Jesus Christ, though many or the majority of Jews do not recognize this. We know that this is true, and he could do so not because he killed the perfect animal once for all, But rather, he himself was the perfect sacrifice. And as our faithful high priest, because of what he did, no longer are there animal sacrifices. No longer is there a holy of holies, only enterable by certain people on certain days throughout the year. He is it. He is the one. We have access to what we can now call the holy of holies, not a physical place, but the very throne room of God that Isaiah saw through Jesus Christ. We can come to him frustrated, and angry. I don't recommend it, but you can. Why, God? How dare you, God? And you are not struck down dead because of Jesus Christ. He hears. God the Father hears. He responds. He blesses. All because of our faithful high priest. But all of that is contingent on one thing whether or not jesus was truly god man sure there's proof of that there are atheist historians that will tell you yes this man lived some will even tell you denying he is lord that he did we have record that he died and came alive after three days we don't know how but this man, Jesus Christ, did that. I don't believe in him as God, but there's undeniable proof. We know this. He was man. But how do we know that as God, his life on earth was perfect, thus making his death on earth sufficient? And the answer is simple, the resurrection. The resurrection. And that brings us to our third wonder of the glorious mystery of godliness, the vindication the vindication. Paul goes on to say that he was vindicated in the Spirit. We're familiar with the concept of vindication. It means we're more familiar with the word justification, vindicated, justified, declared righteous, to vindicate. It's the same word here. In other words, something had to happen in order to prove that everything that Jesus claimed to be and do was in fact True, authentic. There are many occurrences during his time on earth in the flesh that showed his deity, fulfillment of prophecies, and frankly, things that only God could do. There were the declarations of his birth and conception through the Holy Spirit to Joseph, Mary, Elizabeth, and others. At his baptism, there was the opening up of the sky, as it was described, and the Spirit of God descended upon him and the Father's voice declaring Jesus' Sonship. Matthew 3 and John 1 tell us this. There were, of course, the miracles that fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah who was to come, so much so that the denial of them by the Jewish leaders was the unforgivable blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Mark 3, Luke 12. Then, of course, you have the transfiguration. Matthew 17, and Mark 9. But all of these testimonies to the deity of Christ, none of them attest to the victorious payment for sins on the cross. Only the resurrection does that. And it was the Holy Spirit who was the agent in the resurrection. Romans 1.4 tells us this. Jesus was declared the Son of God, with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Then Romans eight eleven says that it was the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So to summarize, it was through the resurrection that everything pertaining to Jesus' existence on earth was vindicated. It was through the Holy Spirit that the resurrection occurred. Hence, Paul's words, vindicated in the Spirit or by the Spirit. Now, when it comes to this mystery of godliness, Christ's resurrection is everything because it not only means that He is what He claimed to be, but also that the reality of who we are as the church has any meaning at all. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I know we're looking at a lot of cross-references this morning. I do want you to turn to this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll look at verses 13 through 19. Verses 13 through 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, great chapter on the resurrection, And if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, you know that 1 Corinthians was written because Paul is addressing a lot of wrong thinking that the Corinthian believers have. And in fact, they had sent him some questions that he is responding responding to and correcting in this letter. And some were teaching that dead people, not Jesus, they believed in Jesus' resurrection, but there were, they said there's no resurrection for human beings. And this false thinking was coming in to some of the minds of the Corinthian believers. So he says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. That can sound confusing in the English, but He's just sticking with this hypothetical. If hypothetically speaking, Jesus was not raised, then we're actually dishonoring God by saying that He raised Jesus from the dead, because we're telling people something that He didn't actually do, and it is a misrepresentation of God. So, let's continue. Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. There it is. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Fallen asleep means they have physically died. They use the term fall asleep because they will indeed wake again. They will be resurrected. Then verse 19, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. This provides a practical explanation of the importance of the resurrection. Quite simply, without it, nobody would be saved, which means we would all still be in our sins. Why? Because we'd be worshiping a liar. We'd be exalting a dead God. We'd be hoping To reunite with dead Christians who are in fact not waiting for us, and we'd be longing for an eternal future that does not exist. So, we can agree with Paul. In light of all of this, we are indeed the most to be pitied if there was no resurrection. These songs, these gatherings, all of it, what a joke! How pathetic. But he was raised from the dead. We worship the one true God. We exalt a living Savior. We will reunite with the Christians who have died before us, and every ounce and itch in your soul that longs to be with God forever will be fulfilled. He is risen. He is risen indeed. The prophecies attest to this, the post-resurrection narratives attest to this, the eyewitnesses of the risen Savior attest to this, your changed life attests to this. But there is also a supernatural, otherworldly proof of the validity of all that Jesus did in his life, including his resurrection, and that proof is from the angels. And that brings us to the fourth wonder of the glorious mystery of godliness, the confirmation. The confirmation. Paul goes on to tell Timothy that Jesus was seen by angels. This speaks not only of their witness of the resurrection, but also of all that Jesus did on earth from conception to birth, from life to death, from resurrection to ascension. The angels saw it all. And the angels that Paul is referring to here are not the fallen angels, although in the Gospels we see that in great fear and trembling, they too were witnesses of Christ's victory over them and their leader, even sometimes begging him not to do what he was about to do or had the power to do. This is also not a secular use of the word that refers to really moral or attractive human beings. This is a reference to God's holy servants and messengers, the holy angels. They are a completely different being. We do not become angels unless you believe in some sort of super spiritual uh, reincarnation. Right? You don't become something else. Some people have that misconception. Oh, when we go to heaven, we'll be floating around, we'll be angels. No, they're a completely different type of being that God created, like dogs or trees. Okay, So we don't become angels. They are a different group. And in context, we must be sure that we don't undervalue the significance of the word seen. This wasn't a passing glance or even a short meeting just to confirm his existence. This wasn't God the Father sending them for just 30 minutes at a time. He doing okay? You doing okay? Okay, we're gone. No, they were there. The word seen does at face value mean to see, but there are also the meanings of visit, observe, and attend to. So not just to see with the eye, but to be involved with, similar to how we would say, hey, I'm kind of sick, but I was seen by a doctor. You don't find comfort in getting better because he just walked by, see you, bro, and then walks away, right? You mean he attended to you. He talked to you. He helped you. He prescribed something. And we know that as God, angels were with him at all times, but there are some specific instances in which the Gospels give us descriptions of the angel's involvement with him. You have the angels announcing his birth before and after conception. And since we're talking about angels serving as witnesses to Jesus after conception, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. We know that Joseph was a righteous man, so when he found out that his fiancée was pregnant, rather than having her publicly humiliated and punishment punished, as was his right and, frankly, duty according to the law at that time, he planned to send her away in secret. Matthew 1.19 tells us this. Then, in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1, we read this. But when he had considered this, to send her away in secret, in other words, not marry her, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." Stay in Matthew. And in Luke 2, we read of the angels shining brightly around the shepherds and announcing the birth of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is why in most nativity scenes, you also have these shepherds who are on the side. After Herod, hearing about the birth of the king of the Jews, deceitfully sought to kill Jesus in an attempt to keep his own power, God then sends an angel to protect Jesus and his earthly parents. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So even before Jesus as a human being could speak, the angels were seeing him and attending to him and through his parents who could hold him and travel elsewhere, protected him. And of course we know this was all within the plan of God. This was in fact a fulfillment of prophecy. Look at Matthew four eleven. After his time of being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, in his humanity, he was so spent, so exhausted and hungry that the angels came. Matthew four eleven. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to to minister to him, which on a side point also shows the proof of his humanity in that he needed others who were subservient to him to minister to him because in his flesh he was physically weak. Then we jump to Matthew 28. And you also have the angel at the empty tomb explaining to the women what had happened. Matthew 28, verses 2 through 7. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid for i know that you are looking for jesus who has been crucified these next four words are some of the greatest words of any narrative in the scriptures he is not here for he has risen just as he said come see the place where he was lying go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold he is going ahead of you into galilee there you will see him Behold, I have told you. By the way, we find this also in all the Gospels Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. Now, jump ahead to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, since you're ready in the Gospels, turn ahead to the end of the Gospels, then we get to the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. You are familiar that Acts tells us all about the missionary journeys and the conversations and all the challenges and blessings that these early disciples and apostles had as they were jump starting the early church. But it all begins with a continuation of the narratives of the Gospels. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And after he had said these things, Jesus Christ, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, who might those two men in white clothing be? They were the angels all the way through to Christ's ascension, seen by angels. These same angels, as they did from eternity past, now worship jesus christ hebrews 1 6 says and when he again brings the firstborn into the world he says and let all the angels of god worship him why does all of this matter because the angels serve god and if they did all of this then it was because they were seeing and ministering to the authentic savior God's holy angels would not see in this regard someone who was a false messiah, someone who was not real, someone who was outside of the salvific plan of their Lord and Master, God the Father. And so the testimony of even the angelic realm is clear. But the skeptic may very well say this does not prove anything since it does not resonate with those who deny the supernatural world, then let's bring it out of the supernatural world because Paul does. For there is a great movement of this glorious mystery of godliness even among us. And that leads us to our fifth wonder of the glorious mystery of godliness, the proclamation. The proclamation. Paul goes on to say, proclaimed among the nations. Upon his ascension, the apostles obeyed Christ's final charge to them and took the gospel to the world. What was that charge? We have it in two places. We have the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and His final charge to the disciples in Acts 1. Let me read for you Matthew 28:18 through 20. You know it or are familiar with it in part at least. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, and this is after His resurrection, This is the last thing we have Jesus saying to his disciples. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is why we evangelize. Because of the great commission. He was commissioning them to go out and continue his ministry of telling the world that the Messiah has come and now, at this point, died for your sins, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And then he ascended, and they were left holding this baton in very simple words. What he was doing in the Great Commission in one of the most what will be for centuries after this occurred and centuries more should he prolong his return. The most wonderful, the most glorious, the highest privilege, and yet the most arduous, emotionally taxing most difficult for believers, tag, your it. It is now their turn to continue on the ministry of Jesus Christ. Then we have Acts chapter 1. A moment ago when we looked at the angel's presence at the ascension, verse 9 began, and after he had said these things. What are these things? Acts 1, 7 and 8. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, did the apostles go to the remotest parts of the earth? No, they didn't. They lived normal human lifespans. It would have been impossible, especially in that day and age. And even with modern technology, they couldn't have gone to every people group. But we know that that baton was passed, and we continue it on, and missionaries have done that. And as much as people want to talk about unreached people groups, the gospel has gone to every part of the world. The reason Paul can now say that the gospel was proclaimed in the world is because of this final charge from the Lord, a charge that the early church took upon themselves to fulfill, a charge that has continued to be taken on by Christians throughout the ages and around the world. They were to proclaim it. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, proclaimed in the world. It means to proclaim as a herald. It is the word for preach. A herald would be someone who prior to the invention of other methods of quickly and broadly disseminating information would walk through the streets and specifically into the town square announcing news, literally just shouting it. In a town or village, this could be anything from the birth of a new child, an invitation to a wedding, or even the arrival of the king. And by the way, when we proclaim the gospel, we do all three of those things. For believers, what we are ultimately proclaiming is not merely the arrival of the king, but that he is the king of kings, and that he lived, died, and raised for the salvation of those who would believe. And, as I stated earlier, those who would believe is not a term limited to the Jews, but all people, hence the term Paul uses, among the nations, which refers to all peoples. Now it goes without saying that central to this proclamation is the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is evidenced which is evidence rather that the Old Testament promises are being fulfilled in the advancement of the church 's evangelistic mission, and this mission being accomplished by the ambassadors of christ second corinthians five eighteen through twenty one tells us that we have been committed with the word of reconciliation and we are ambassadors for Christ. Reconciliation, reconcile. It infers that someone was once on good terms with someone, they fell out of good terms, became enemies, and then became friends again. This is not to say that people are born good. It is to say that humanity as a whole was created and declared good. Then they sinned, and all men are sinners, and now the gospel is is that word of the ministry of reconciliation that we are to proclaim to others to say, hey, you may not know this, but you are at war with your Creator. I need you. I want you to get back in His good graces, literally. And that's through the gospel. We are ambassadors. An ambassador is a representative of, in our world, the king or the prime minister or the president. I've shared with you before that when we lived in Albania, to see the ambassador drive by was a big deal, the ambassador of the United States. There were many ambassadors there. And you would know him because just like as you see in the movies with the president himself, he drove in... Some sort of limousine or an Escalade or something that they had shipped from the States, undoubtedly bulletproof and all that. He had security. He had the American flag flying in the front of his hood. And whatever he said was the same as if the president said it himself, except on the occasion that the president was actually in Albania and saying it himself. He represented the words of the President of the United States. He was treated with the same respect. He was given the same or equivalent in their country security. It was powerful stuff. But he isn't the President. He just says what the President wants him to say. And if he doesn't, that's on him and he can get in a lot of trouble. You see... We get scared to share the gospel because we're scared people won't like us, people get offended, they won't agree with what we're saying. And those are all valid fears if you are straying from the words of the president. If you're just telling them what God wants you to tell them, that's not on you. Don't kill the messenger. That's on God. And trust me, God can take it. When you start arguing, when you start judging, then you better be afraid because you're straying from the truth. You're not functioning properly as an ambassador. And so, as hard as evangelism is, it really is easy. You can, like Jesus did in the wilderness, just quote Scripture if you want. And if they're bothered, say, hey, I get it. I was once bothered by it too, and frankly, sometimes I'm still bothered by it. But it is God who is saying these things, and you need to hear it. There really is no greater message than the fact that desperate sinners who are separated from their Creator cannot merely be reconciled, but they can become the righteousness of God in Christ. And since you sit here today as Christians who are living, the baton is now being passed to you. In fact, it's been sitting in your lap since the day you accepted Christ. What have you been doing with it? More importantly, what are you doing with it right now? Because surely... The common confession of the mystery of godliness unfolded in his birth, the vindication of his claims through the resurrection, and witness of the mighty angels is not a call to focus on making money, having a boyfriend, or buying a house. Surely it is not so that you can waste time on screens, make friends for your own comfort and glorification and sense of self-worth. It cannot be so you can find your happiness in your child's worldly success and think you are selfless because you live for them. No, it is for the Lord and the proclamation of the very reason you know anything about Him in the first place, salvation. Preach the gospel. This isn't something we take comfort in and say it was proclaimed among the nations. This is a challenge because we're supposed to be doing it right now, every day. You can't tell me that when you look at God's sovereign plan, that all those difficulties you have in working with immoral, gossiping, sexually immoral coworkers is just to strengthen your faith or to make you work harder, or, or to learn how to discipline yourself and not get involved. It's because God wants those immoral people to become moral through the grace of the gospel. That's why you're there. You're not there to make money, primarily. You're not there just to exist. You're not there just to be a good steward. You're there so that unbelievers can know how to be saved. That's why you're there. You can't praise God that He healed you from your sickness and God is sovereign. You can't praise God. God is sovereign because that car didn't see me. He would have killed me if He, didn't, if he for some reason, didn't just happen to change lanes for no reason and say, well, God's not sovereign in putting these people in my life so that I can share the gospel with them. I get that in all of these points this is the only one where I'm going to give you practical application because everything that we're looking about at regarding the gospel and the life and times of Jesus Christ as much as they are for us they are for others as well preach the gospel why are you here why are you here if you're just consumed with mansions and perfect relationships and, and riches, then pray, Lord God, take me now because you'll have much of that there. We are here to preach the gospel. Not sharing the gospel, according to James, is the same as having an affair or molesting a child. Because sin is sin. And you can't say or think that it's not sin simply because it doesn't hurt other people. And what a foolish thing to think. To deny them the opportunity to at least reject eternity. Man, you're hurting them more than you could ever hurt them in this life by not telling them the truth. One of the best motivations we can have, aside from honoring God in our evangelism, is that it can transform lives. And if it can transform lives, then that means it has transformed lives. It's transformed yours, it's transformed mine, and it has transformed the world because people believed. Wonder number six the transformation. Believed on in the world. This is the response to proclaim among the nations. Colossians 1.6, speaking of the gospel, says, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. The end of John 20 explains why the gospels were written down at all, especially during a time when the oral tradition of passing on truths was the norm. John 20, 30, and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The fact that many in the world believe testifies to the effect of preaching the gospel, evangelism, And again, parallel to the word nations that Paul used earlier, the word world tells us the scope of who Christ came for, namely everyone. And the reason I call this the transformation is because we know the gospel has turned the world upside down and continues to do so. You cannot truly believe without a changed life. And you cannot have this many changed lives without the world being completely transformed. Even at the beginning of all of this, the Jews referred to the apostles as these men who have upset the world, who have turned the world upside down. And I've mentioned several times recently that one of the aspects of being a Christian is that we are salt of the earth. We infuse a quality of salt in the unbelieving world. And as sad as it is to see the increase in the acceptance of ungodliness and the decrease in the shame of such things, it would be far worse without the transforming power of the gospel shining through the church. Remember, we're talking about the wonders of the glorious mystery of godliness. And if a changed world is not a wonder to you, There's not much else I can give you. But we have one more, our final, our seventh wonder. We've seen the declaration, revelation, vindication, confirmation, proclamation and transformation, and now the exaltation. Taken up in glory. The final movement of Christ's time on earth was to be removed from it. This speaks of His ascension. Christ going back to where he came from, heaven. The tense of the word taken tells us that it was a completed act, done once and for all. The fact that it does not say that he went, but that he was taken up, shows that he was welcomed by the Father. And not only that, Hebrews 1 3 tells us that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. The right hand being the place of authority and honor while at the same time being in subordination to the one sitting on his left. And notice the way in which he was taken up, in glory. Glory can be, mean brightness, splendor, radiance. When speaking of God, the word tells us of his glory and majesty, the dazzling brightness of God, both visually and morally. You could say visually because of what he is, Morally. And what this reminds us of is the victory and majesty of Jesus Christ, which provides for us not only a powerful conclusion to this hymn, but a powerful preparation for what is to come in chapter 4, which begins with a warning of the power of false and demonic doctrine, in other words, satanic attack. And this final piece ensures that everything else we have learned this morning is solidified, set in stone, immovable, true. We live our lives in light of this. The reality of Jesus Christ is wonderful, which is why a life lived in conformity to Him and His will is wonderful. And that gives us a simple way to figure out why things may not seem wonderful at the moment, go back, And ask yourself if you are truly believing and relying on these indisputable facts. Isaiah's response to the train of the robe and the call of the angels was this Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He instantly realized his sin and wickedness, and not only that, the sin and rebellion of the entire nation of Israel. We come to God not saying, Woe is me, not saying, I am doomed, but praise God for his forgiveness. Praise God for His grace. Praise God for His mercy. Why? Because you have accepted the glorious mystery of godliness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your plan of salvation. The clear aspects of every point of what Jesus Christ did I pray, Father, that as believers, we would live in light of these truths, understanding that the testimony was confirmed not just by what you have done in changing this world, but also the eyewitnesses of your, the angelic realm. I pray that this would motivate us to preach the gospel, to see the world and the people in the world not as an inconvenience or enemies, but simply as people just like what we once were in need of the truth. May we live in this life not just pursuing the things of the world and being comfortable, but may we live in a way that we glorify you and find joy. And may we rely on the truth that you are alive and you have ascended and that our comfort is only for a moment. So we should live in a way that we're willing to be more uncomfortable until you bring us home. May that discomfort not be because of a lack of stuff to buy or a cluttered home or a discontentedness with being single, but may be because we are out there in a world that hates us because it first hated you, living the truth, begging people to come to know you, and living steadfast and holy in a world that asks us to do different.